Support for the game podcast is brought to you by StarCityGames.com, the world's largest independent retailer for Magic the Gathering singles and supplies and home for the best strategy content on the web. If you would like to support the game podcast, feel free to check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash the G-A-M podcast. everyone, welcome to episode 77 of the Game Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me is Brian, resplendent mentor Gottlieb. This is the four dub two two, correct? Yeah, this is the guy who there's some like goofy infinite combos with to gain a bunch of life. I think from Shadowmore, is it the set? Oh yeah, no, I, I love this card. I love drafting mono white and everything, but what what is the deal? Well, I, I just wanted to reference the resplendent mentor. Maybe I'm giving myself a little bit of credit before I've actually earned it. But, you know, most weeks we come to the cast and we're just here to talk about the metagame and just giving out advice generally, you know, without any laser focus. We just want to make everyone listening a better magic player. But this episode, we're going to have a laser focus to our talk. And that is to get people qualified for the Pro Tour via RPTQ. We're going to talk about all the different configurations of decks for Team Unified Standard. We're going to talk about how we're getting to that point. And I want to be a resplendent mentor. I want to carry people to greatness because unfortunately, I can't participate in either of the RPTQs as I'm moving one week and I have a bachelor party in like San Diego and Las Vegas the week of the second set of RPTQs. So I'm completely shut out, but I want to send success to everyone listening right now and make sure we get tons and tons of people qualified for the next pro tour. Yeah, I do too. I I think that is kind of the biggest goal. I mean, I've had uh, a few notable people come up to me semi-recently and Tell me about how, you know, like I I think people give us too much credit or maybe not like don't give themselves enough credit. But like Jacob Negro said that like the podcast really helped. And uh, Ben Reagan actually came up to me last weekend and said that it helped a lot, too. And it's just like, that's it. That's the goal. That's what we want to do. So, yeah, I I love hearing that. It it, like means the world to me when people say things like that. And I agree with you. They're giving us way too much credit. They definitely had it in them. But it's, it's still nice to hear, even if I'm, you know, a little... Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to say skeptical because I, I trust what they're saying, but I just don't want to take the credit. They earned it more than I did. Right. They, they're still out there doing the work and everything. And if we were in small part like an inspiration or a motivator, like, OK, cool. You know, I'm, I'm definitely down with that. I buy into that. But these people who are playing the matches, right? Not us. So yeah. good on them. Exactly. All right. Well, we had a pro tour last weekend. I was there. Uh, I didn't play. All the rounds, but they they did let me play in day two, so that was nice of them. Very nice. I tested with the Pantheon, and that was my first time working with them in quite a while. Huey, Owen, and Brock just moved into a place that's pretty close to Josh Cho's. So Cho is you know my best friend in the entire universe, so I definitely wanted to hang out with him leading up to this Pro Tour and everything, and we kind of just found ourselves teaming up with the Pantheon and everything and spending basically every day at Huey's. And then eventually, you know, there's 15 people in this house every day. So that was a pretty good experience. Uh, Basically like on Monday or so after going through various brews and testing some control decks, which I normally don't do. I was basically just like, okay, you know, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to play red, black. Like here's the list I'm thinking of. Like if anyone wants to talk to me about it, cool. And then, 
later on that day, leading into Tuesday, I think people were just super high on blue white, like various forms of Teferi decks. And they're just like, yeah, nothing beats it. Tuesday night, Wednesday rolls around and everyone is playing red black because they found a red black list that beats up on the blue white decks. That's basically how the, the entire team got to play red black. And uh, my list differed from there significantly because I had some different ideas than the rest of the team did. But uh, I mean, overall, we, we came to the same conclusion. Do you want to tell us a little bit about where you differed from the Pantheon list? Because I find that super interesting. Obviously, you get a group of some of the brightest and best magic players in the world together, and there's still room for dissension, even when you say this is definitely the archetype we want to play. But I, I saw your list and I was able to compare it to Owen's list. I mean, it, it's a good number of cards off. It, it's really not that close. No, it's not. And I mean, I, I think that's a, a very good talking point, too, just about the tournament in general is that, yeah, the tournament had seven red base decks in top eight, but like they're all pretty different. Yeah, there was certainly variation among the different decks. You know, does that translate to the most exciting and compelling top eight? Probably not, even even with those small differences in, in the archetype. But you're right that there's a lot of different ways to kind of take things going forward with the either mono red or red black decks. And I would classify your deck as one which was very conscious of the chain whirler problem. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. I I was very cognizant of the mirror match. It was one of the just the biggest decks and best performing decks, like not even during GP Birmingham necessarily, but even after that. And I think kind of the hype died down, like blue white control kind of like rose up as this thing that was supposed to just keep the black red decks in check, but I think ultimately failed to do so as people started just configuring their decks a little bit better and having better sideboard plans and stuff against them. And like even the blue white decks were not as homogenized, you know, like there were some with gear, some with pull, some with like neither. Right. And it's just like, well, I don't know exactly what combination of cards I'm expecting to play against necessarily. But then as the blue white decks just, you know, basically worked off of Brad's deck list, I think it became easier and easier to fight them. Yeah. That's a, a really good summation of what I saw as the story of this tournament was that red black figured it out. Like they knew how to attack the blue white deck now and they had a the right plan for post board games without a doubt there were way more duresses way more doom falls way more like planeswalkers and diverse threats not only that a bunch of decks also despite the chain whirler problem so kind of going the opposite way um, from the conclusions you reached they brought back bowmat courier which as someone playing blue white there is no card you want to see less out of the opposing red decks than Bowmat Courier. It completely changes the flow of the game and, and really just makes the matchup challenging in and of itself. I agree 100%, but Bowmat is so bad in the mirrors. It's it just is. A com- it's a complete liability. It absolutely is, but you know, if you look at the red base decks in the top 8, they all had Bowmat. 5 out of 7. I think it was five out of seven. I thought it was six out of seven, but yeah, it was was more than half. Yeah. So what do you make of that? I mean, I agree with you. It's a huge liability in the mirror and the mirror was the most played deck, or at least, you know, going a little bit broader than that, red-based aggro was by far the most widely played archetype and it only got more and more prevalent as the tournament went on. So how are all these decks that were packing Bomat Courier still able to find success in that field? Well, sometimes they don't have the Chain Whirler, uh, sometimes you don't draw your bow mats and sometimes it just like doesn't really matter in game ones. And then you get to sideboard them out. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't think it was like a matter of like, Oh, bow mat ends up being fine in the mirror because I highly doubt you saw a bow mat in a post board game. 
Right. I, I mean, if you did, it was almost certainly a mistake. I you, I can't see you wanting to actively keep in Bo Mats in that matchup. Right. So I think that if you are trying to beat up on mirror matches, which I certainly was, then playing Bo Mat is not where you want to be. But I do think that like going down the stretch, there were a lot of decks in contention that were not just mirror matches. And the mirrors ended up on like the good side of a lot of things. Like uh, Kevin Jones lost two winning ends with his blue black mid range deck. I think Alexa Tellerov also fell just short. And yeah, there's like a bunch of people, a bunch of different decks that uh, were actually in contention in the final rounds, but the red decks all won. And I'm sure like Bowman had a lot to do with that. Right. It's hard when you see the top eight not to get too caught up in the storyline of, oh, there's 28 chain whirlers here. Uh, but you're exactly right. That things, if things just break a little bit different. There's a completely different narrative here. And only one round is really determining this narrative of Chain Whirlers, the dominant card in the format. Not to say it's not. It absolutely is. But things could have gone very differently. And, and I mean, honestly, if, if Kevin Jones had one more turn in his match against Marcio, he he would have won and he would have been in the top eight. So right. th- that's, that's how thin the margins are uh, on having at least a little bit different story for that one match. Yep. And that was the exact situation I was going to bring up too. It was just like, Kevin Jones literally needed one more turn. And then it's like, okay, well, there's one fewer red-black deck in the top eight and one additional Scarab God deck, right? So a lot of things can change. And it, it all just comes down to like, you know, some red decks won like some coin flipping matchups in the last few rounds. And it ends up looking like a, a pretty bad format instead of what I think is actually a pretty good format, all things considered. Right, right. Do I still believe that Goblin Chain Whirler was a mistake? Yes, to some extent, but not one that will cause the format to implode upon itself. It's sad that it does narrow the number of playable cards in the format, the number of playable strategies you can really bring forth. You have to be cognizant of Chain Whirler, and I think it's a mistake as far as that goes. But this format is not solved. It's it's not play red, black, or, or you lose. There's plenty of things to do here. And I know we're going to be talking about them as the show goes on. But real quick, looping back around to your performance. Yeah. It's, it sounds like you were pleased with your deck choice. I, I mean, you your conclusions panned out, right? You said red, black's going to be the most played deck. I'm prepared for it. Let's go. But things didn't quite break your way. No, I mean, this is probably going to sound pretty similar to my Pro Tour Ixalan review or whatever but it was like literally all five matches i played in standard came like or every game rather came down to someone being like screwed or flooded and i was like sure there were like some decisions to be made but like most of the time it was just like us playing a lot of non-games which was just very unsatisfying Hmm. and i think a lot of that certainly has to do with like how i built my deck where it's like in the games where i'm flooded like i had eight big cards instead of like people's like 10 or even 11 and I was not playing Karn, which some of my opponents were, because in in testing, it seemed like the games, especially in like the Red Black Mirrors, were like a little too fast paced for Karn to actually matter. Okay, I could see that being the case. You know, it's just like, okay, you have this Karn and you can tick it up and gain it a good advantage over like three or four turns, right? But if they have like a Glory Bringer and you don't have an answer to it immediately, it's just like your board is going to get decimated. Yeah, irrelevant. Yeah, instead, I, I went with four Rekindling Phoenix, uh, two Chandra, two Glorybringers of my own. I thought eight big cards was going to be enough. In practice, during the, the the Pro Tour, Like that ended up not being the case. And like realistically, I didn't even like draw a lot of Rekindling Phoenixes, you know? So it's it's like hard to say how big of an impact that card would have made. But it seemed like that was one of the, the dominant cards in the Red Mirrors. So like I do think I did a lot of things correct. One of the things that... 
I did do that people on my team did not like was I played Soul Scar Mage instead of Bowmat, and also with those played two copies of Aethersphere Harvester. And Harvester, I think, is just one of the best cards in the mirror. Raptor actually said he thought it was the best card in the format, which is kind of why they played the deck that they did, the blue green card deck. Wow, that's a that's a really bold claim. But realistically, why I wanted it was as a check to rekindling Phoenix, to some extent Glory Bringer. It also attacks Planeswalkers and Red Black has kind of an iffy mana base where, you know, you play some Cinder Barons, you play some Swamps that you don't really want to play. You have like Aether Hub, maybe Spire of Industry with not enough artifacts. Like past Dragon Skull Summit and Canyon Slew, like your mana gets really awkward really quickly. So Aether Hub can fix that to some degree, but realistically you need something like Aether Sphere Harvester to actually make your mana good. That's a fair point. So it, it sounds like you don't regret your choices. Like, would you run back the same 75 if you were to do this tournament again? I mean, I would want to spend an additional day testing and like actually working out the the kinks and everything. I Like I said, I think I was probably a little bit too threat light. I think I got punished because of that. I think that maybe I should have played more with Karn rather than relying on like instinct and like previous experience. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe just play like three Cinder Barons, no one drops, and no Harvesters, no Aether Hubs, no Chandra's Defeats. Like, maybe just get rid of that package entirely. So, just because like I ended up playing a bunch of non games for the most part, it's really difficult to actually draw conclusions. Yeah, that's frustrating, uh, especially at a tournament like a Pro Tour. But, you know, I-, I guess it comes at the the best time for a bum Pro Tour. You've kind of locked up everything you could possibly lock up for this season. Uh, not a huge amount at stake for you here, but I, I know you wanted to do well despite that. So that's, yeah, always. I, I'm giving you a pass, but I, I'm sure you're not going to take it. So no, no, I'm I'm not very satisfied. I mean, if anything, I I just want to you know give it another chance, right? It's just like I'm looking forward to the next pro tour. Obviously, it's team, so it's a little bit different. But regardless, I mean, there's there's always going to be another tournament, you know, and I'm I'm pretty happy about that. Right. Right. Cool. Even even like knowing the results of this tournament and seeing that like the Bomad versions did well, it's like I, I'm not sure you could convince me to play Bomad Courier. Like not when everyone is playing Chain Whirler, not when uh, the storyline is like, oh, Red is dominating Chain Whirlers everywhere, blah, 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 blah. Like I just don't think I could do it. I've seen this a little bit earlier in the format. What about like sideboard Bomads? It seems like if you anticipate this deck is so much of the field. And and you acknowledge that Bomat is a great card in a lot of matchups. It fundamentally changes some fairly prevalent matchups. Like I think generally control was like the second most played archetype, depending on how you lump things together. But there's certainly spots where you do want Bomat Couriers. Is it just too low impact to be giving up sideboard slots to a card like Bomat Courier? Or, you know, is it something that maybe you will consider in the future? Well, once you remove Bowman Courier from your main deck, you're automatically slanting your deck a little bit more on the mid-range side. So right. then your sideboard plans are probably going to go hand in hand with that, right? And then you don't necessarily want Bomat Courier after you 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 know board in all your like glory bringers and stuff like that. Also, in the post board games, like people are or at least they have the capability to be like more ready for the early stuff. Like they're going to have more cheap removal and magma sprays and stuff like that. Like the blue white control decks even are going to have like Baral or history of Benalia to just block it, you know? And I'm not saying that that like completely invalidates the card and that means that you should take them out or anything. But at the same time, it's just like the card is definitely worse in post board games than it is in game ones. So if I'm trying to not play it in game ones to be better in the mirror matches, like, you know, what are you doing sideboarding it? It's especially if you, you you're already starting your sideboard with four copies of duress, you know, it's just like you have four duress, four bowman, and then like what else do you have? 
That's true. And once you have duress in your deck, you're suited to playing a different style of game. Like you, you have access to a better overall plan versus blue white, say, and you're not as reliant on cobbling together card advantage from your one drop. You, you can actually fight them on kind of a fair basis and you can proactively remove their settles and resolve your planeswalkers and your other big threats. So you, you're not forced into that game plan anymore. So I get what you're saying where it's kind of like an all or nothing thing. You either have it and ride it hard in game one or it's not the right card for your deck. Yeah, I, I basically agree with that assessment. I, I get it. I understand the allure. Like, it just seems so weird to me that you're like, all right, red is going to be the best deck, but like, oh, I also have to beat control. And instead of coming up with a plan that does both, you're just like, well, I guess I sideboard these bow mats and, you know, just like lose game one against control and then hope that four duress, four bow mat is good enough. It's just like, why don't you just have four duress and then a plan that actually makes sense against control and, have those Bowmats be cards that could slot in in other matchups. Yeah, I get it. Just sideboarding Bowmat Courier seems like a mistake. What do you make of the rise of Mono Red? I mean, Mono Red hasn't really been a player in this format. We kept saying, it's close, it's time is coming, but it was sitting a little bit on the bench. But let's not forget this tournament was ultimately won by a Mono Red deck. Black was not present in the winner's list. And this is a deck that really hasn't done much up until this point. Yeah, I think the key here is that obviously the red cards are very, very good. And, you know, I guess the question you have to ask yourself is what is red black bad against? What are its bad matchups? I think red black is kind of positioned as the 50-50 deck in this format. I I think post-board especially, it has game against absolutely everyone. Whereas red has more polarized matchups would be my answer And I would say it's probably slightly favored in the quote-unquote mirror, the mono-red versus red-black matchup. I think mono-red probably has the advantage there. Yeah, I agree. Like, red-black is effectively good against everything. You know, if it Mm -hmm. it is like coin flipping, but maybe you're better than your opponents or you have good sideboard plans or you've tweaked your main deck to to be a little bit better against the field currently, then red black has no bad matchups like no auto lose matchups until you're just like oh yeah mono red is actually favored in in the pseudo mirror like mm-hmm. hazaret with the ability to actually attack with it on turn four or turn five is huge and right now like some of these red black decks had answers to things like they had soul scar plus Chandra's defeat or like one or two copies of hour of glory some of the more greedy people played Vraska's contempt the people with three Cinder Barons that played Vraska's Contempt are are fine. Like I'm I'm okay with that, and that's like actually a good concession if you're trying to play like a more controlling red black deck. But like you see very very few answers to things like Hazaret and Rekindling Phoenix, and Mono Red is just the deck that is saying like, okay, I have I have threats, and I don't really care about answers. You know, like maybe you get to tag team Soulscar Mage with. Chandra's defeat to kill Red Black's Hazaret, but you also don't really care because they can't attack with it until like turn six. Sure, sure. So yeah, Mono, Mono Red, I think, is just the natural predator to Red Black. So it, it's it's kind of weird and kind of dumb. And I think that Goblin Chain Whirler is kind of responsible for this, where uh, the Red decks, despite being very, very different, are just like going to occupy a large part of the metagame share just because like red is so deep and so powerful. Like I I think it is both the strongest color and the deepest color, maybe not for like a completely wide array of strategies or anything. Like you can't necessarily play a red control deck, like a hard control deck or anything, but like anywhere from 
hyper aggro to like kind of mid-rangey aggro to actual mid-range to more of a controlling thing. Like it, it is kind of dumb that all of these decks are red based and that is sor- sort of Chain Whirler's fault, you know, but uh, I do think that like the format is cyclical and will continue to move even if people think that it's not particularly interesting because it involves a lot of the same cards. Right. And and there are natural predators to red. Like let's let's not forget that. There's especially mono red, like the Steel Leaf Stompy decks, completely defensible against mono red. Very difficult for mono red to beat those decks in most instances. And there's there's predators to red black too. I mean, you can't get a huge advantage, but there's ways you could slant your deck to have a small edge against them, especially in post-board games if you want to give up a lot of sideboard slots. So I don't think this is a solved format by any stretch of the imagination. It is funny, though, that there's two mono-red cards banned right now, and this deck is still able to see this level of success. But I guess there's cards banned in almost every color, so you can't really make that argument as anything really telling. Yeah, I mean, it is it is silly, but I certainly don't want these decks to have access to Remnant Ruins, you know? No, 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 no. That would be scary. Very scary. Yeah, that card is dumb. But... As far as like the Ferocidon versus Chain Whirler and what should be banned, should anything be unbanned, like whatever, I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't think anything necessarily fixes it. Like even if you did something silly like ban Chain Whirler, like maybe the format opens up a little bit, but like these decks are still going to be present, you know? What if everything was unbanned? What I mean, what do you think happens then? Maybe with the exception of Marvel, which is just a bad card from a gameplay perspective. Do you think we have an interesting format if everything gets unbanned? Uh, maybe you have more competition against the red black decks in like a tune with ether rogue refiner long tusk cub. But for the most part, I feel like allowing that package to be illegal would likely homogenize the green decks to a point that is unsatisfactory given like that's kind of where we are with the red decks too. Mm, good point. Good point. There's no reason to kind of stray from the energy package if it's available to you. So I get what you're saying. It's just adding more of the same problem. And, you know, it probably does become a rock, scissors, paper, met, or rock, paper, scissors metagame. But there's the problem that all of the forms of rock, all the forms of paper, all the forms of scissors look exactly the same. Yeah. And right now, I mean, from from making a list of potential decks to play in the RPTQ metagame, like there are a lot of different, I mean, not fully viable decks right but like there are a lot of different strategies that you can employ for standard and even looking at like the deck list dump from today it's like there's there's a lot of different stuff out there you know tier two is deep this is a a very very deep tier two of a format one of the deepest we've seen in a while it's it's just a question of is there any reason to leave tier one well for a pro tour no for a pro tour that involves like a team series also no like people I think are less likely to brew because, you know, you have like five teammates potentially pressuring you to like, just play a good deck and, you know, don't, don't risk like your pro tour and our success on uh, trying to break it with scrap trawler. But, you know, sometimes uh, an entire team ends up playing scrap trawler. Who knows? Yeah. I I mean, it happened. Uh, (laughs) You say you shouldn't do it, but there was a whole team willing to take the leap. I had never thought of the chilling effect that the team series could have on creativity at the Pro Tour. That's interesting. Maybe we'll have to unpack that a little more at another time, but it just definitely caught my attention when you said that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it does seem like people are playing more tier one decks just in general. Like Part of that is probably because of Magic Online and having more results. Part of it is probably because of the team series stuff. Maybe 
I don't know, people are just like, hey, I, I want to win, right? And this is this gives me the best way to do it. So Yeah. It's funny how the mind state of players evolves over time. I think if you go back a few years ago, there was a huge, huge emphasis and push on creativity at the Pro Tour, having something off the wall that no one was prepared for. That was what all the big groups were doing almost every single tournament. And now it's just people come to the table with very refined versions of the best deck. Uh, And I'm sure this will be cyclical and we'll see that trend change over time as well. Yeah, maybe. I mean, this this one was particularly odd because it was a month and a half removed from the actual release date of the set. So, you know, people had a lot of time to like iterate and everything and... I don't know. Also, just like the red cards are all dumb, like in every part of the curve. It's just like Scrap Heap is just like the best two drop, right? And it's like you have like Steel Leaf Stompy splashing for it, basically. You have Chain Roller, which is just like completely warping the format. You have Unlicensed Disintegration, which is like one of the best removal spells. Even like Heart of Kieran, Phoenix, Hazaret, Chandra, Car, and Glorybringer. Like Red has access to all these cards and they're all nuts. Yeah, super powerful list of cards you just laid out there. And then what do the other decks have? It's like uh, Territorial Allosaurus. <laughs> Let's go. I'm going to pass on the Territorial Allosaurus. The, the only answer I can give you really is Teferi. I think Teferi still is a very powerful card, but I don't think it, this was the right tournament for Teferi. People were prepared for the blue-white deck. It was a deck that you and I had said all along was exploitable if it was wearing the target. People could beat it if they wanted to. Uh, and I don't think it had a miserable tournament and there was some evolution in the archetype and people approached it different ways. You mentioned, you know, some people packing their gear hulks. Some people were playing approach, which kind of blew my mind. Not a choice I expected uh, one of the bigger testing groups to arrive at, but they did. Uh, and it seemed to put up some decent results. So uh, definitely room for variations among blue white. But on the whole, I don't think this was the optimal tournament for blue white. No, I don't think so either. I mean, I like, so Cho ended up playing blue white actually. Mm-hmm. How did he do? I mean, he he didn't have a good tournament either. I, he went three and five after two winning his draft, but he said that the majority of rounds he lost were his fault. It was like due to mistakes and unfamiliarity and just you know not really being in the right mindset. Like he identified like a lot of places where he just like lost a match on the spot. But we tested a lot of different control decks, and uh, one of the things that I think caused Cho to end up playing blue white is Ben Rubin came up with the idea that like the, the game one in the blue white mirrors is just kind of nonsense. And you have like uh, some cards that actually matter and a bunch of cards that just don't matter, you know? Right. So he, he was trying to find a way to actually break that paradigm and came up with Whirler Virtuoso where it's like, well, maybe if you just have like a couple thopters to like pressure to fairy or like get extra lands off settle, you know, it's like they can't actually answer go wide stuff very effectively, especially from another control deck, right? Yeah, that's true. Definitely a card that you bear some vulnerability to. Thankfully, is not present in the format at this stage. Yeah, so uh, that ended up not really panning out. Like, the the decks aren't super good at making energy. Like, obviously, Glimmer helps, but I don't know. You just have a bunch of pretty bad removal spells against Blue-White, and they have Cast Out, which you could also have to, to some degree, but like... I don't know. It just it seemed like Whirler Virtuoso lined up pretty poorly against Essence Scatter, and if they had to use like a Fumigate or two Sealaways on a token, like it, it was just fine. Sometimes the tokens would actually run away with the game, but most of the time it it was just like kind of annoying to deal with, but completely serviceable. So 
it ended up not breaking it, but like we we played a lot of Jeskai control, eventually cut the Whirlers. We're still playing Jeskai, and then uh, Nasif ended up playing that deck, and Cho just kind of like shifted from Jeskai into blue-white because he was still happy with like the overall game plan and like Teferi, sideboarding Brawl, all that sort of stuff, but definitely agreed that like the red was not where you wanted to be, so you're just like, eh, whatever, I'll, I'll play this blue-white deck, and I almost played it, Huey almost played it, and he was the only one who just like held on to it, which was not great. It's like not a great feeling when you're like, all right, I'm going to play this deck and like two of my good friends are going to play it too. And we're going to have this like solidarity and everything. And then everyone else just jumps off it except for you. It's like, uh, maybe I'm doing something wrong, but right, you got to have the fear at that point. Like, uh-oh, what did I just do to myself here? Yeah. I honestly don't fault him for, for playing it. It was just like, uh, yeah, maybe you just needed more reps with it or, needed to be like a little sharper that day, you know, and it kind of sucks that like a big portion of your pro tour career comes down to just one of four tournaments a year, you know? Yeah. That's a tough spot to be in. That's why professional magic is tough, man. Yeah. It would be nice if it was just like overall win percentage or whatever, but obviously that's just not doable. It is like, you know, how do you stack up when you compete against the best of the best? And like, this is game day, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Closing thoughts for this pro tour, I think like I'm I'm going through all these deck lists and like pulling out things that are pretty interesting, but for the most part, it's like moto decks. I, I'd be really curious to see like what the matchup data is from the pro tour, and I'm kind of curious to see whether or not anything along those lines is gonna get shared just because this is just another situation where people are like, oh, the sky is falling, you know? And it's like, well, not necessarily like here's the data or whatever. Cause I'm pretty sure it's like red black is not winning like 70% of its matches or whatever. Like that's just not the case. Right. I think someone at some point will distill a lot of the data. Obviously you can't get all of it. If you don't have everyone's deck list, only wizards is going to be privy to that. And I don't know that they're going to give us the full data picture, but I bet we'll get a lot more fulsome picture of exactly what went on as days go forward. And Things are not going to be quite as bad as they seem. Again, I don't want to downplay the fact that Chain Whirler is a format-defining, format-warping card. That's absolutely true, but we're not out of options. That's the important thing to remember. Right. I mean, this this exact scenario basically happened in Birmingham, and like the the metagame changed just you know again like three days later or whatever. So, yep, it can happen yep. again, and it will. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I'm just saying it can, you know. So, so you're not convinced it's going to happen. I'm convinced it's going to happen. I'm going to put my foot down. There'll be a change in the metagame. And in fact, you can look at the Magic Online PTQ results, which were completely different from this tournament. Don't make too much of those because obviously there's a lot of great, great players already playing the Pro Tour and not participating in the PTQ. So there is you know, a little bit of a, a downplaying of those results, certainly. But still, it looked like a completely different tournament. And it was dominated by Green Black. So there's like a whole other metagame going on in the digital realm while this Pro Tour plays out. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see how those two things smash together when the time comes. No, that's legit. I mean, I, I honestly, I do think things will change. And realistically, there aren't that many tournaments left in this format that like the team unified stuff is the next big thing, I think, for most people. And then there's like GP Pittsburgh. That's about it. I think I think that's a wrap at that point. So, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, I you know, I'm still reasonably into this format. I'm, I'm not over it yet. I wouldn't mind playing it a little bit more. Certainly better than the last few standard formats we've, we've been running through. I don't know. Maybe it's time to turn our attention to to the big tournament coming up. The, the thing that everyone's here for, I think, things that people have really been clamoring 
for us to talk about for a while now. And we kind of pumped the brakes a little bit. We wanted to wait until all the information was there. But I think it's time to talk our PTQ and, and to give our listeners the info they need going into this very unique, very difficult tournament. It is, absolutely. Uh, I guess I, I failed to note one thing is that SCG Con is this weekend too, and I'm in Roanoke. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a big tournament. That's the Invitational. Yeah, I'm in Roanoke right now, and it's like, yeah, I have to play Standard this weekend actually. So th- there is one more big tournament for me at least. All right, so so real quick before we go to RPTQ, Standard deck for the Invitational. Go, lay it on me. Uh, three. What are you playing? Three, if you choose? three Cinder Barons, let's go. Okay, now we can move on to the RPTQ and and this really interesting, unique format that we have to break down uh, and understand in a very brief period of time. And and for three dollar not patrons, I will be posting my deck list Thursday night, I believe. So excellent. Boom. Uh, as far as RPTQ stuff, the the big talk was always around blue, white, green, black, and red X. Right? It's like, oh yeah, and it just makes sense that like those are all reasonable decks, and like that's how you can split up the colors and everything, and basically no cards are going to overlap. And it's like, I'm not satisfied with that answer. Like there are, like you said, tier two is super deep, right? So like if you're already stretching into effectively tier two for green, black, and blue, white, then why not, why can't you try and go a little bit deeper? I looked at all the different decks that have done somewhat well in standard, just like anything that's like five owed or top eight and open or whatever. And it's like that list of decks is pretty deep. And thinking about what other people are going to bring and whether or not you can actually metagame against them, like the only constant to me is that everyone is going to have some sort of red deck. That's my number one hard and fast rule. Every single team has a red deck. It may be mono red. It may be red black. Some people might go completely goofy, uh, probably making a mistake by doing so. But there will be a red deck on every single team. That is a fact. Yeah, I mean, you can play green red monsters or like mono red God Pharaoh's gift or whatever. Like you can do things like that. It's not a good idea. What what it basically amounts to is that the metagame is going to be 33% red something. Yeah. I mean, it has to be some interesting wrinkles to that statement. Let me first make a point about my why I dislike the level zero of green, black, blue, white, red X, and then I'll circle back around to the, the interesting wrinkles. But I really dislike that arrangement because number one, I think the blue white deck is an underdog against at this point, either form of the red X deck. Uh, I used to just think you were an underdog against mono red and you were fine against red black because they didn't really have their sideboard properly configured and you had a bunch of plans you could do. They didn't, you know, you're able to blank their removal in game one or whatever. I don't think that's the case anymore. Their sideboard plans have evolved. They've gotten better. Their main deck now includes Bomat Courier, which I referenced as a very problematic card. I don't know if every red black deck will have that going forward, but maybe they should. And that means once once you have a losing matchup against that spot, I think it's also possible that whatever deck picks up black. So it may be the red deck that ends up being a red black deck, but if it isn't and the red deck is just a mono red deck and they put black somewhere else. So it's either blue, black or green, black. I don't think you have a great matchup in that spot either because when people go super hard on duress, super hard on doomfall, these cards are problematic for you. You're not able to rely on Settle the Wreckage to get the job done, especially these new blue white lists, which are giving up on Fumigate to a much larger extent, and they're dependent on having Settle on that key turn. So duress does a lot to impede that plan. People are playing around Settle the Wreckage much better now. They, they know 
what the deck's capable of and the jig is kind of up and you're losing points in all black-based matchups. And that means you're now a dog to two of the three decks on the other side of the table, quite possibly. And what does that leave you with? A mirror match where, you know, are you devoting a huge amount of your sideboard to the mirror match? Like a lot of these decks now play four history, uh, some number of negates. So like nine, 10 slots for the mirror match, but you need those slots now to be able to deal with red, black, with mono red. You're dependent on getting access to those cards to shore up those matchups because those decks have now have those matchups, you know, handled from their side. So I'm off blue, white as a absolute necessary inclusion in your three decks. I think you're doing yourself a disservice at this point by doing so. And there's just better options. I'm off it. I want other things to do. I mean, there's also the issue of like, even if you end up playing a mirror match, can you finish in time? Sure. That doesn't go away. I mean, that's been an issue throughout this format of, you know, are you going to saddle your team with a draw? That's that's scary stuff. You don't want to do that in a team tournament. So, yeah, another good point. And then if uh, you're not playing against the red deck and you're not playing against the black deck, it probably means you're playing against a green deck, which also just has like a bunch of bestiaries and like other assorted things that are bad for you. So. I'm very down with just abandoning blue-white as an archetype completely, and then you basically have to return to the drawing board. Agreed. And so now I want to circle back to what I was going to say about the the wrinkles of the 33% red matchup. So, so basically what you're saying is that when you sit down every round, you have a 33% chance of playing against the red deck. And I, and I think that's pretty close to accurate. But what's interesting is that in a tournament like the Pro Tour, where the best decks are being filtered towards the top, and in this tournament, it was very clearly the red deck. When you were sitting down as a contender in round 13, 14, 15, you had a much greater than 33% chance of playing against the red deck. Like It was everywhere. It was all over the top tables. In this tournament, the Chain Whirler deck can't be more than 33% of the decks you face at any stage in the tournament. And that's a really interesting wrinkle and one that you have to unpack a little bit and one that I think gets you access to your X1s. I, th- I think you're pretty safe picking up X1s at that point when you know Chain Whirler, even in the late stage of the tournament, is isolated to 33% of your potential matchups. I mean, I agree that Chain Whirler is capped at 33%. And I think that the the real metagame share of red decks based on just human error and the want to do something other than the norm makes it like 25 to 33% red but like even if it is the cap even if it is 33% like does that mean that you can play like a deck with SRAM's expertise or like Llanowar Elves and Siphoner or does it make you want to play Bowmat Courier's main uh, maybe but like just being like actually super weak to Chain Whirler I don't think is a good idea like Right, right, right. You're, you're right. I may have overstated. You you want to you still need to be cognizant of it, but you get some of the more powerful cards back that you otherwise wouldn't have had access to. Or you know maybe you're of the mindset that it's just a mistake to play Llanowar Elves in this format because of Chain Whirler. I think you need to pump the brakes on that stance a little bit and understand that you're unlocking these decks even in the winner's meta game as you go deep into the tournament. If you believe Red Black is the best deck, you can still defend your position that you want to be playing some number of X ones in your main deck very successfully. You know, you don't have to take the approach that you took in this tournament where you identified red black as the best deck and you shored up your vulnerability. I don't think you need to go that far. Don't play a deck that's blown out by it and completely can never beat a chain whirler, but you can get back some of those cards that maybe you previously put away. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty reasonable. I thought red was going to be 35% of the pro tour, which is why I did what I did. And 
it being capped at 33, and I know that it's capped at 33, maybe that changes things slightly. But I think most of it depends on what you want to do with the other two decks, right? Like, so for me, knowing that people will more likely than not have a red deck made me wonder if there was a way to exploit that and like try and find a lineup to kind of like isolate and pick on their red deck and just make it so you have a very, very good shot of getting a free win. And I would only do that if I also thought that the other two decks were just, you know, reasonably good decks on their own. You know, like I wouldn't play a, just like a mono life gain and like kill hazard deck or whatever. Like that deck is sure. not going to beat anything else, right? But like something like the the Steel Stompy decks with uh, blue or black splash, like those were supposedly supposed to be very good against red decks. Blue, black midrange, maybe blue, black control, the Esper, History of Benalia, Scarab God decks, uh, and even like Bant Ramp. You know, like these are things that I have to do like a little bit more testing with just to be sure of and like be sure of like my configuration and everything. But like these are things that I would look at. And if these decks are both playable and have a very, very good matchup against red, like that might be something that you actually want to do instead of just like hoping you get favorable pairings. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I I think there's a couple decks in particular that I've targeted as doing what you're talking about, targeting the red deck, making sure my red deck is positive as I expect to play it 33% of the time, but also having reasonable game against the rest of the field. The first one you mentioned before, blue-black, either mid-range or control. I think both are defensible. I think you can build both so that they're favored against the red deck. You're also getting the benefit of picking on the blue-white deck. Like I said, once you have access to your duress, your your doom falls, you're able to play that longer game successfully and you know exploit a lot of the vulnerabilities they have. So, And I think a lot of people are still going to be picking up blue-white. I might be off of it. I think a lot of people still have belief in the deck. And, and I do too, to some extent. I still think it's a defensible deck overall in the metagame. I just think in this context, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be playing blue-white. Um, but other people will do it and you'll be able to exploit them by having blue-black. The other deck which I have picked up on is something I'm really interested in, both for having a good matchup against red uh, and just having game against the field in general is some kind of green-white deck. Uh, I'm looking at something like Craig Wesco's deck, which you know I think he has four Brontodon's main. Oh, excuse me. He only has one Brontodon main. I, I was confusing that with another list, but he has plenty of game uh, against the red decks in three Shalai, three Lyra Dawnbringer, four Blossoming Defense, two Aetherseer Harvester. Like he can definitely play against red with a high degree of success while still not folding to any kind of blue black control deck or blue white control deck. He's fine in those matchups. Shalai goes a long way to making those matchups palatable. So I, I really like. Right now, the lineup of green, white, mid range ish, kind of calling back to the first PTQ of the season, if you can go back that far and remember it. Yep. And, and then going some kind of blue black deck in the other seat uh, and, and taking advantage of a few positive matchups. It's, it's pretty easy to just say that like mono red should be what you're playing, right? Just because it is the slight favorite in the mirror, even though it might be like a little bit worse across the board. Yeah, and I I just think you get to unlock some very good decks if you choose to go mono red. But with that information, if other people reach that conclusion, then you know that kind of pushes you in a different direction, and that makes something like your choice of Steel Leaf Stompy really defensible. Because I think Steel Leaf Stompy is unique in that it has a very strong matchup against mono red, and that matchup gets much worse when black gets in the mix. Yeah, I'm not sure how much worse it gets. Like, it, I think it just depends on their configuration. Like. 
you see some people that have a bunch of like cut ribbons in their sideboard. And then you see some that have like a bunch of very targeted stuff from the mirror in Chandra's defeat and hour of glory. So it honestly just depends on how many removal spells they have that actually matter. That's fair. And there is, there is a large amount of variation across black red. So I, I see what you're saying. The other thing that I want to think about is like, is there any way to like build your red deck in such a manner where you can actually like hammer home the whole like isolate the red deck thing. And it is possible that the flame of Kel version is if not better against mono red, it's certainly better against red black. Yeah. This is, this is one that caught me by surprise. I don't have any experience with the archetype. I, I haven't even played against it to be honest with you, but you could see the potential for this hyper aggressive version of the deck to be the way to go in the mirror uh, to, to get those points. I don't know. This is this would be a bold choice, uh, one that I would have to put in a lot of playtesting with before I was comfortable with because it, it might just be a worse deck. I mean, quite frankly, it hasn't like it hasn't set the world on fire. It hasn't really done a lot up until this point. And I know it's been floating around the radar for a little while and it hasn't put up any results. So that's the first thing that makes me pump the brakes. But I'm sure the sample sizes are smaller for the deck. It's not like it, everyone's playing Flame of Keld right now. So I'm on board with exploring that idea. It's an interesting approach, uh, you know, going further down the either larger or smaller end of things when it comes to mono red could could bear some really good results. There were two Flame of Keldex, the top 32, the PTQ. Okay. Not like the greatest results or anything, but, you know, it is it is something. Like this PTQ was 343 players, so... Right, and I wouldn't expect it to have had a huge metagame percentage. Like, it's not a deck that's everywhere. So, you know, two people in the top 32 is significant. Oh, this is actually, like, they both had seven and two records. So that's not bad, actually. Yeah, very close to just making the top eight. Again, one little thing, tweaks, you know, if both those guys win those matches, we're telling a completely different story right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and like you said, this metagame was not the Pro Tour metagame. Like, there were a lot of, like, red aggressive decks, like mono red aggressive decks, but, like, not a ton of red black. No, very and, small and amount. This is what I think that that deck would actually be good at targeting is red black, but it can hold its own against other stuff too. Hmm. Interesting stuff. So more more testing necessary, but yeah, I, I actually think since I am not 100% confident on something like the Bant Ramp deck or Steel Leaf Stompy that I'm kind of down with your suggestion of green white, like specifically... Uh, the way Wesco built his deck, maybe with some tweaks, but I do think that his deck is likely a lot weaker against control than you give it credit for. That's possible. I, I'm certainly leaning on the impact of a few very specific cards there, and I don't know how much he does in post-board games to shore it up. There are other versions of green-white floating around out there, too. There is uh, Marcos Paulo de Jesus Freitas. Sorry if I mispronounced your last name, but he's got a green-white Benalia deck that did very, very well. His is a little bit more on the control side of things, this weird mishmash of a bunch of creatures and then two Fumigates and two Settle the Wreckage. I get what he's going for. I kind of wish he just had like four Settle the Wreckage if this is what he wants to do and, and got off the Fumigate plan. But again, he's got like four Thrashing Brontodons, four Knight of Grace, a bunch of really good blockers, and just generally like the, the big green bodies as well as some Lyra's and post-board configurations. So a lot of stuff you could do with the green-white archetype and most of it will be favored against the red deck. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I mean, it is still kind of tough. Like, Ixalan's Binding I think it's a very, very key card or at least like things like it. I mean, you could do Thought or Rest or Cast Out, but I think like Ixalan's Binding is the one that's like an actual punish against them just because they rely so heavily on their four drops. 
Sure, sure. So that is probably a card you want access to, and then Vraska's Contempt. And I think that's just a good way to look at it, where if you are trying to have good matchups against the red decks, like split your Contempts, split your Bindings, or cast outs, whatever, and then have the other deck be a red deck and maybe not go like full ham trying to beat like the the red mirrors or anything, but definitely be cognizant of it. So it sounds like we both kind of agreed on configurations. I wasn't expecting that. I thought there'd be a lot more battling and, you know, you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. But (laughs) we kind of got to the same place pretty quickly where it makes sense. You know, if this is a hard and fast rule that red's going to be in every single configuration, you got to target it. And I'm on board with blue, black, and green, white is the way to do it right now. Yeah, because I I don't think it's it's a hard target. Like I don't I don't think you're making like a hard read or anything. I think that like I I kind of went there head on, and I'm just like you know how do we mess up these red decks, right? And you were just like, well, you can't play blue, white, green, black. So like, what do you do? How do you flip those colors? Like you need to play a red deck in one of the seats, and then. If you can't play blue white because it's just going to be bad against red and bad against black, then you have to do something else. So you kind of did it backwards and ended up with like the, the same thing as me, like the same plan, right? And right. I, I think I just conceded that your your green white deck is a better idea than my other green decks. But I do I, I do think it basically comes down to you have to split green and you have to split red, and then one of the other the other seat is going to be a blue or black deck. But you should also split black and white yeah there was a period a period in time where i was looking at like black white being one of my archetypes and i think it just limits you too much you're putting too much of your your good stuff into one deck and maybe not even getting a favorable matchup out of jamming all that stuff in there so i that's another deck which i would not include in many of my configurations i I think black white's probably a mistake as well yeah i mean i i am fine with esper as just an idea, you know, but then that leaves you with Steel Leaf Stompy and I'm just kind of questioning like how good that's actually going to be. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. Not a deck I, I actively want to play. Although I know there's people out there who feel differently. So yeah, man, I, I thought that deck was, was going to show up at the PT. I think that I thought that was just going to be like the dark horse choice where, you know, people aren't necessarily going to be testing for it. They're, they're not going to be really familiar with like the types of different things that you can do with splashes and everything. And it did show up. It did do pretty well. I'm not sure whether or not like that changes now, like the, the red decks are mostly just focusing on like control and mirrors and basically nothing else. Like maybe hedging against green black if they can by playing as many removal spells as possible. But like, are people actually going to be worried about steel leaf champion going forward? Like, I don't really think so. So I, I don't think that deck necessarily got any worse. Right. I, I, maybe it's also just like not an archetype for me. Like I don't want to play a bunch of stupid green guys. It won't make me happy in a tournament. And that's why I'm passing on it even harder, uh, just outside the constraints of the metagame, it being a deck that I'm not really all that fond of. Uh, I so, played I played a couple leagues with it and I, I hated every second of it. I believe that. That's been my experience as well. So so I don't know. I, it is It is a deck. It is definitely up there. It is one of the stronger decks in tier two for sure. Yep, that's that's where I would put it. But it doesn't target things as well as the other decks. That's really the deciding deciding factor for me. It, it's not proactively generating good matchups the way some of the other choices are. No, but like what what is it bad against? You know, it's like oh maybe it's bad blue against white. yeah. So it's bad against blue white. But we just said that blue white is not really playable. Right, but can you rely on other teams to reach that same conclusion? No, and here here's no, the thing not. though. 
But us doing this is in some way driving things in this direction. I was going to put you on the spot and just be like, okay, if everyone listens to us and you go green, white, blue, black, red, what do you do then? But that's really like, how far down the rabbit hole are you going to go? Like you have to assume some set of people is just like on level zero and you have to find what level you want to be on. And RPTQ is, you know, somewhere kind of, I'd say below like day two of a Grand Prix, definitely below Pro Tour. So I, I don't know if you're going to see that level of adaptation and and taking the next step. And who knows how many people are even going to listen to us. People might hear this show and be like, ah, oh, these guys don't know what they're talking about. So, Or, yeah, they already have their plan in place right. because this is kind of last minute, you know, but if if we're talking like blue, white or blue, black, green, white, mono, red, I think Esper, mono, green, green X, mono, red is probably solid. I don't know. It seems like Steel Leaf would beat up on blue, black and the green, white deck, which is kind of a concern. I could see that. Uh, I think my quick answer would just be like blue, white, green, black, red. <laughs> so I'm back to square one. Where does that leave us in the end? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what no, the response man. is. No, I, I honestly think like blue, white is bad against blue, black. It's bad against mono, red. It is likely bad against green, black. It is not ideal to be playing straight mirror matches. You know, it's just like blue, white seems like it just lines up super poorly against everything unless like your opponent's configuration is just like three tier three decks, right? Yeah, that's true. Blue white is just not viable. And then I think that makes green black, not viable. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. A couple other points I wanted to touch on in terms of like this team tournament, just real quick beyond deck selection. Cause there are, you know, you actually have to play the games <laughs> it, based on the amount of discussion over deck selection. I think I've, forgotten that part of the equation, but you are going to have to play the games. And people were asking a lot of questions about things like seat assignment. Do you put any stock in having a certain deck in a certain seat? Does that matter to you at all? I mean, there's, there are going to be some teams who are like, all right, seat C is our uh, mono red guy. Cause he's the guy that plays mono red. And then there's going to be some teams who overvalue the communication aspect of it. They're like, all right, we're going to put our best player on mono red in the B seat. So you can finish his match really quickly and then help both of us play. I think it's just ultimately going to come down to being random. Right. I agree. It doesn't matter whatsoever. So let's close that question off. The other question that I wanted to answer is team communication. How important do you think communication among team members is in this style of tournament? In the constructed the con- the constructed team format, how much are you talking to your teammates? You need to keep in mind that, especially if you are not used to working cohesively as a unit, most advice you're going to get is going to be bad advice. We are on the same page on this one as well. I, I, th- I think you're, there's very discrete situations where it makes sense to call in the opinion of someone sitting to your right or left. You have to learn how to identify those situations and avoid going overboard with the team communication things because you're certainly a better player than me. But if I'm in a, in a position in a game and I've played the first 15 turns of that game and I need to make a discrete decision on turn 16 and I call you in and say, hey, what's your opinion here? You're missing something. No matter how much of the story I give you, no matter how much we go through previous turns, there's just something that you're not able to perceive there. A momentary flick of the eyes towards the graveyard two turns earlier that isn't in your mindscape, but is in mine. And at some point, you just have to trust your teammates to do the correct thing. I think teams communicate far too much. So if you're looking for an answer to this question, my advice is communicate less than you think you have to. Use your teammates where there's these very like, I like mulligans, honestly. That's my favorite spot to consult my teammates where I'm on like a close call. I just want to get their opinion. And ultimately, I'm probably still going to go with my instinct. 
but I want to hear what they're saying, what their thoughts are. And maybe they're thinking of a different combination of cards, which leads me to a keep, um, you know, potential draws that they see uh, at a, they see a 45% chance of success where I see a 30% chance of success and, and they're correct. So I go with their mulliganing decisions, but ultimately you have to play these games yourself and you have to trust yourself. And the team communication thing is, is way overblown in these tournaments. Well, you have to know that your team trusts you too. Sure. So basically what I've been doing is like, if I'm going, if I, if I have an inclination to mulligan a close hand, I am going to show my teammates so that like they cannot hold me accountable later. Right. If I end up going like two and six over the course of a day, but like I mulligan to five, like every other round or whatever, it's like, I kind of want them to know that without complaining about it. I just want to like show them my hand be like, yo, this is, this is a mulligan, right? Like I have permission to mulligan this just, just to like, Make them keep having faith in me, I guess, you know, because I don't want them to get distraught. I don't want me to think that like they're distraught or disappointed in me or whatever. It's just like, hey, like this is the thing that is happening to me, right? Like actually asking for mulligan advice can matter sometimes, but like people have such wildly divergent mulligan strategies. Like Raptor basically never mulligans. I want to mulligan all the time. And I think Cho is like closer in line with me or whatever. But like there are also times where he just like, wants to gamble or whatever. So he'll like ask Raptor instead of me because he knows Raptor's going to tell him it's okay to keep, you know? I love that strategy. And, and those things, those things are fine. Like it's, it's completely fun. And like, I trust in show to do like whatever his heart tells him to do, you know? And I, I'm just going to have to be fine with it at the end of the day. So whatever, like I'm not going to be mad at him for not doing exactly the same thing that I would do because that's just not realistic. But yeah, say you're in a game three situation and you're playing like a red black mirror, right? But like you have a one land hand with like maybe a, a two mana removal spell and a kind of a slow draw. And it's like, you know, sh- should I keep this or whatever? And your teammate is just like easy mulligan or easy keep. Like I could see that going either way, right? But it's like the information that actually matters your opponent doesn't have like does your opponent have Bowman? Are they mulliganing aggressively? Like, how do they play the matchup? What do they value in the matchup? Like, how are they sideboarding? Stuff like that. Like, right, right. all of these should impact whether or not that's a viable hand or not. And your teammate has no idea. Exactly right. And I just think this part of the equation is something that people are missing. And honestly, my favorite use for my teammate in team tournaments is bluffing. Like if I have absolutely nothing in my hand, I might lean over to my teammate and start like pointing at things and pretend like I'm setting up a play on a certain turn so that I'm able to influence my opponent's play. That's the most value I get out of my teammates in most team tournaments. So pump the brakes a little bit on on consulting with your your partners on every single decision. And I think it'll benefit you in, in this RPTQ coming up. Yeah. And as far as the bluffing like that, that is some more high level stuff and Again, like you need to be a cohesive unit to actually like pull that stuff off because it, if like I lean in and I'm just like, oh, Brian, why aren't you doing this? And like pointing to his basic planes or whatever. And he's just like, dude, that's a land. Like, what what are you talking about? You know, it's like, <laughs> right. OK, never mind. We're done here, you know. But like yeah. if I if I lean in and I'm just like, yo, did you think about doing this? And you're like, well, yeah, but and then you kind of like whisper some stuff to me that is just like nonsense or whatever. And then I just like you know, think for a little bit and on my head, you go back to playing your game. Your opponent's just like, oh man, like, you know, what were they just talking about? And like, maybe it matters, maybe it doesn't. Like you need to know your mark, right? Right. You can't just right. try that against every single person because, you know, you, you can do things to make it seem like you have a settled wreckage when you don't or whatever, right? 
Uh, but then there are ways where you make bad bluffs where it lets them know that you definitely don't have it. Yep. It's a very nuanced, very uh, delicate art. And you have to, again, trust your teammate, know that they can pull it off if you're going to go for it. My advice is basically just don't do it. If you're not 100% confident in how you're supposed to do it, just don't. It's okay. Play magic. Yeah, you don't need to do that stuff. Yep. It adds a little bit of fun, maybe some percentage points here and there, but most of the time you can't pull off a calling station anyway, so it's not going to work. Spot on. Question time? I think it's question time. Yeah, I, I think this was a nice wrap-up of the RPTQ, and you know, I'm going to do my best to float around the uh, the Discord the rest of this week and answer any questions our Patreons might have and, and try and really help out everyone who's preparing for this tournament. Hopefully, we get a lot of qualified a lot of qualified Patreons for this one. God, that would be so sick. I'm I, Okay, I'm shooting for eight teams that have a patron on them. Wow, that that's a large number. Is, it, um, is that greedy? I mean, how many how many teams do you think we have participating? There's probably like 20 or so. That's a really high conversion rate. I have faith in them. Okay, so let's shoot for eight. Well, hopefully the reports will start pouring in come this Sunday. Although there's another RPTQ two weeks down the road from that. So we could have a great month, just a, a whole bunch of winning going on all month. No, that'd be rad. So uh, m- anyway, my plan is to post up some deck lists uh, to go – Along with this episode, as far as like blue, black, mid, green, white, Wesco, and mono red, I think. Mm-hmm. And then I'll, I'll also put up some lists for like Esper, Steely Stompy, Bant Ramp, and maybe blue, black control. Although I don't feel like anyone should really play that, you know? So like I'll try and give people like outlines for possible ways that they can take their lineup if they do actually want to follow our advice. Yeah, and my task along those lines is I'm I'm looking at getting a typed up version kind of of this discussion into the hands of our patrons real quick, just so they have this information with as much lead time as possible. But you know they can they can look at the typed up version and then they'll hear this cast in a few days and hopefully they'll get the full picture and know exactly where our heads are at leading into awesome. this round of RPTQs. Beautiful. Okay, so let's get to our question. This is this is a weird one. And at first, I didn't know what to make of this question, and I kind of wrote it off as a nothing question and moved on. But then I thought about it more, and I, I actually think it's a really interesting, adaptable question. This one's coming from Cameron Anderson, and he asks, what kind of questions should we actually be asking? And I didn't know if that was just like a troll question or exactly what he was looking for here. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought I had some interesting answers here. So... Do you want to take a shot at this? Dude, that that might have actually just been a question that he didn't expect to get answered on the cast. <laughs> I know. I, I, I totally think that's the case. But I, I think it's cool the more you think about it. I don't know. The questions that are interesting to me are, like, I've been making content for a long time, but I've been playing Magic even longer. And uh, I think a good, studious Magic player will eventually, like, relearn lessons or at least, like, relearn how to tweak things that they already know. And basically I I am not necessarily used to explaining in great detail things that I do already know, even though I should be, and I should be trying to like relearn and revisit those things. Uh, So whenever someone asks me a question that's like, Oh, Hey, like you said this, but like, can you expand on that a little more? It's like, oh crap. Yeah. Yeah. I I should definitely do that. Or like, there's just like this little bit of minutia where they're like, you know, this would make sense if you also added this in and it's like, oh yeah, I forgot that, you know? So like those things are very helpful. And the complete flip side of that is just like asking me questions that like, 
I didn't even think to answer. Can you think of an example of that? I don't know, man. I like. I think we've gotten a bunch of these questions before. Maybe not a ton, but it's just like if I write an article or we do a podcast, like a deep dive type of thing where it's like deck tech plus like maybe here's how to sideboard, here's the matchups, here's how they play out, here's what you should value, etc. And then like someone in the comments is like, have you thought about like taking this approach to the matchup or just like something along those lines, not even necessarily like something specific, but I don't know, just like I'm trying to come up with like very broad examples for things that are interesting that we haven't touched on yet instead of like, you know, what kind of food do you like or what's your tournament preparation or, you know, do you have habits or superstitions or anything, you know? Right. See, this question appealed to me because I saw it as a chance to identify the type of questions which are very difficult for me to engage with. And a lot of the questions I see are things which my instinct is to answer them with, it's about feel. And I try and avoid that as much as possible because that's a horrible answer and doesn't yield any information to the question asker. But I, it's often in response to things like, oh, how do you know when to main deck a disenchant effect? And like, if you think about it, my answer to that question is never going to be something like when 33% of the decks have six or more copies of an artifact, then that's time to play a disenchant effect. Like I can't give you a hard metric to really answer that question. What I can say is that, oh, when I feel like enchantments are an important part of the metagame and I have the slot to spare and there's viable enchantment removal spells, then I can start considering it. But that's like obvious. That's the obvious answer to that question is, is when enchantments are good, you start looking at disenchants. So those type of questions are, are really tough to engage with. I mean, if, if a question is like something I could come back with when it feels right, then it's a hard question for you to get anything out of. But when you ask more specifically, I see a bunch of Argyle's Bloodfast being played out of the blue-black decks right now. Does that mean as the blue-white deck, I should be boarding in my Forsake the Worldly? That's a question I can engage with. That's a specific situation, which it's really easy for me to get to the bottom of. And, and sometimes I think questions in an effort to get as much information as possible want to paint with as broad a brush as they can. But that's actually sometimes inhibiting the learning process. Because when you're looking at a specific example, I can say, here's the reasoning in this case. This is how I got to this point. And then your job as someone who's seeking to learn more is to extrapolate that information and apply it across a bunch of different situations. And then you can start getting to the answers of when am I doing you know, this kind of deck building trick? When am I using one ofs? When am I mulliganing a lot? You know, All these things, as you see specific situations, you'll become more and more in tune with the proper place to apply those strategies. Um, so, so I think the pointed questions are a little bit better than the broad questions if they're asked with like the right panache. Like, Are they getting to the actual core of the issue and they're not just about learning that one fact in that one instance? Yeah. I mean, it is, uh, you know, teaching someone how to fish versus giving them a fish. Right. And I think, right. I think that at some point I will find a way to teach people how to feel what I feel as far as like, you know, that's your answer to when do you main deck a disenchant or whatever that like, that is my goal. But it's hard. You see why it's really hard yes. to come up with any kind of metric. You can yes, use. absolutely. Like I've been, I've been doing this for 20 years or whatever, you know, right. like I, I can kind of like feel and intuit stuff now, but there's, 
20 years of processes that got me to this point, you know? Exactly. And I I cannot condense that into 30 minutes or an hour or 10 hours. So I have to figure out a way to do that. Yeah. And that's what we were. I mean, it's our goal to do that. That's what every single conversation we have is to lead you to be able to make those conclusions and, and figure out where where this base of knowledge was built. Like, how did we get to the point where we we're able to say, oh, this seems like we should be doing this in this spot. That's what all of this is about. And hopefully you see as you participate in the cast and are hanging out in the Discord and asking these questions, you see that skill set developing for yourself. Yeah. So the question's like, oh, should I side this in against this person? And it's just like, I mean, y- you could just play three games and figure that out, right? So like, why even ask that question? Like, you mm-hmm. you know even if you don't know what the answer is, like how to find the answer. So I guess that's my answer is stuff that you don't know how to find the answer on your own. That's that's a good way of looking at it. Boom. So what do you think about this question now? Do you think this yielded fruit? Is it is it interesting? Is it helping our, our patrons going forward able to, to ask the kind of questions which will benefit them? It is, but we could have just said that. Oh my God, I can't win with you. <laughs> it's a good one. I don't mind doing stuff like this every once in a while. But like, it, okay. it shouldn't, it, I, I also think that this question like does benefit the patrons who are in there asking the questions. And, you know, maybe this helps just the average listener too, because then it's just like, I don't know, maybe they can actually like get answers to interesting questions from us on Twitter or whatever. But like, does this actually help them if they are not in our discord asking us questions every week? I don't know. Well, I will tell you what this has taught me is it's taught me that next week you're picking the question you're in charge and I'm going to sit back and criticize your question choice. And that's going to be the, uh, the game for next week. Well, that's game. Good luck.